0: back then I wonder if both speakers would
1: comment on this idea we didn't join the European Union as it was at the beginning and we are not part of the euro and therefore whether we stay or whether we go we are always going to be on the edge of Europe
2: and that in many ways will count against us whatever happens would you like to comment on that
0: yes Chris let's go to Chris
2: Uh, I mean That's part of my argument, that um, what happens within the European Union will leave us less and less say. The other challenge that we've got is that um, the European Union is governed under a thing at the moment called the Lisbon Treaty, which Gordon Brown signed about seven years ago. And the Lisbon Treaty is a very vaguely worded document. And what it does is it gives the European Court and the European Commission, uh, which initiates policies and new laws in the EU... Um, Very broad-ranging power to expand into new areas. And I experienced this as a minister. Um, Now, under the Lisbon Treaty, social security, decisions about unemployment benefits and so forth, um, are supposed to be a matter for the governance of the member states. But the European Court has decided, actually, because people should be able to move freely around Europe and freedom of movement rules are important, it's decided those rules are more important than the bits about social security. So I found time and again that actually decisions at the European Union level about social security were taking away my power to decide how we did things in the UK. Um, And it's a very good example of how actually, um, even within the European Union as it is today, we often find that things that we are supposed to be responsible for, we are no longer responsible for or less and less responsible for. And my argument is as they go through this process of using all these same legal frameworks, it would be the same treaty, the same court that helps them move towards uniting the Eurozone, but as they pass new laws that are all about the Eurozone, we will be affected anyway. And so our ability to influence what happens, to decide what's best for the United Kingdom, becomes less and less. And the simplest way of explaining that is, if they bring forward a new law that's going to cost jobs in the UK, we can do nothing about it.
0: Paul. Ah, I think think, hang it on that last comment. There's so much
3: there that I almost don't know where to start. No, you you have to be really brief. (laughs) If you go on too long, I shall... I'll be be extremely brief. Um, The ECJ's role is only to interpret the scope of the treaties and the powers of the institutions. It doesn't have any executive power. It doesn't make laws. It was dealing with this issue about social security and free movement 25 years ago when I opened the Brussels office. There's nothing new about this. It's what it's deciding is what do the treaty obligations actually mean. This is trite and it's been there for a long time. I think your question on the eurozone is very interesting. I personally, as my wife will tell you, was against the UK joining the euro. I think there are lots of significant problems with the euro structure. Uh, But I think we're in the best of all worlds at the moment. The European uh, uh, countries which are part of the euro will have to grapple with the structural issues and the economic issues associated with that. The deal that that David Cameron negotiated in February does contain a considerable amount of reassurance to the UK that it won't be prejudiced by that process and that the evolution of the EU, and it will evolve, I don't agree that it's going to evolve in the way that Chris described, but it will evolve, should evolve, um, will not evolve in such a way that the non-Eurozone are prejudiced by the Eurozone, and that's perfectly feasible, So we have the right to take the benefit of all of those single market trading operations, the biggest market in the world, 24% of global GDP, and its access to all the other trading markets, without having to take responsibility for the euro. But we are where we are geographically. What happens in Europe is going to affect us, whether we're part of the EU or not, and whether the... Eurozone problems are solved or not will change the level of demand in those Eurozone countries and the amount that we can sell to them. So we're not isolated from this, and we don't become isolated from it by by leaving the European Union. It's a genuine geopolitical issue that's there, and at the moment we're extraordinarily well-positioned to deal with it.
0: Lovely. We had uh, this gentleman... Actually, let's get to the lady at the back over there in a green top. Anybody who starts a question with as my wife will tell you, means that they had heated discussions over breakfast. Um, It's a nice idea to think that by voting to leave Europe we'll save the government lots of money that they can put back into our public services, but what guarantees can the government actually give us that that would happen? Um, There aren't many post-war governments that I can think of that have been great at keeping promises like that. It would be lovely to think that potholes would be filled in and our doctors would get better working hours and schools would get better facilities. But will the money actually go back into public services? Chris?
2: Well, my answer to that is we have the freedom to choose to do that. And that's the key point. Um, We take back control of that money in the way we would take back control of our migration system, in the way we would take back control of aspects of our democracy. So, no, I can't guarantee you. a Labour government selected in 2020 is going to do very different things to a Conservative government elected in 2020. But the point is, it's about the control. It's about having back control over a very substantial amount of money to spend on our priorities. Now, right now, uh, both Anne and I would agree that the biggest priority for our governments in spending terms is the National Health Service. Um, and I would see that as... Uh, the number one priority in using that money. But, of course, any elected government in this country could choose to do something else. That's our democracy. But this is all about, do we have the ability to take our own decisions? And in too many areas of government, we don't. Paul?
3: A couple of points there. The money, I think, is an important issue. The net transfer from the UK to the Eurozone on an annual basis is about £7 billion, which is a lot of money. But it's only 1% of government spending and it's less than half a percent of our GDP. It's actually something that's within the error margin of the amounts of taxes we collect every year in the economy and overspend by the government. So, yeah, seven billion is a lot of money, but in the context of a country's economy, it's not as big as it sounds. But an impact on our economy of, say, one percent of growth over the next five or ten years... Has a far bigger effect on our ability to build roads, hospitals, invest in schools, etc., than the money that we're spending in Europe. So I think the money has got to be spent, got to be seen in context. And by my calculation, the Brexit camp has spent it about six times over already. So I think we need to be quite, quite careful with this.
0: Okay, lovely. Um, there are lots more hands going up, so I'm going to ask our responders to be very brief. Uh, sorry, there
1: was there was a question for mm. uh, one of the students over here, it was what would be the direct effect on British businesses if Britain chooses to leave the EU? Was that it? So? Yeah. What, what
0: would be what the direct effect on British, of British business? businesses Lovely. if Britain decides to leave the EU? But quick, yeah. but, right, but you're going to speed up. Let's get so, in a little bit speed. So don't take
2: my word for it. Take the advice of one of our leading businessmen, Lord Stuart Rhodes who runs the campaign to remain in the European Union and he said, on the day after we leave, people will notice very little difference. Five years after we leave, people will notice very little difference. And he said it was only really 10 to 20 years on that we would notice a difference because he thought we would have less influence in the world. Now, I don't agree with that, but I certainly agree with him that in the immediate aftermath of leaving the European Union, people will notice very little difference. And the reason we should listen to him is because he is leading the campaign to remain very little difference?
3: I think think the comment of Stuart Rose has been taken out of context and used a little bit. Let me just pick up on this because it's important. The leaders of virtually every major industry or financial service company in the UK or in Europe believe that there will be a serious negative impact. It won't be the day after the vote because then nothing's changed. It will be as a result of leaving the EU. And we can talk about what those effects are. They can't sell their products into the EU without a tariff. Those tariffs are between 5 and 15%. I don't know if you've tried selling a motor car when it's 15% more expensive than it was the day before and you're competing in in a highly competitive market. You don't sell so many. If you don't sell so many, you don't make so many. And if you don't make so many, you lose jobs. We can't recruit in the same way because the government wants to control immigration. The UK at the moment is heavily dependent. It benefits enormously from the highly skilled workforce coming in in Europe. In the modern world, manufacturing industry, supply chains are unbelievably complicated. Just look at a motor car or a vacuum cleaner or a computer. Supply chains snaking all the way through Europe. Those supply chains immediately become subject to controls and tariff and sanctions. So if you're running a business, it gets really difficult. And that's before we start on financial services, 10% of the UK economy, 10% of the UK tax take. Those businesses that have created the world's premier trading centre in London, are heavily dependent on free passporting rights, free movement of capital, free movement of people. It's what's driven their success. They're all going to take a significant hit.
0: Okay, there's a gentleman here, and then in front of you. Have we got a microphone here? Just, uh, Just this young man's had his hand up for a long time, so let's just go to him first. I'll come back to you, sir, don't worry. This gentleman and then this young lady and then um, the gentleman. So if
1: we did uh, vote to leave the EU, should we then hold uh, referendums in the, in Scotland, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland as the majority of people who want to leave are found in England?
0: OK, I'm going to just hold that question, keep it in your head. The young lady in front, let's take that as we're there with my That Yep, right in front of you.
2: Hello. Um.
0: Oh, it's a voice. <laughs> <laughs> is when I was your age everybody had hair like that. <laughs> shush, 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 shush shush enough 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 enough. enough. Okay, enough. Thank you.
1: Chris Grayling, you've stated we won the war. We didn't exclusively win the war, it was a joint effort.
2: I didn't talk about Okay, no, no,
0: no, just like in your Okay. In, yep. Is that your question? Yeah. Okay. Two questions what, together. I, I, just I don't briefly. know what you're
2: talking about in terms of we won the war because I, d- I didn't talk about the war and I don't think the the war is relevant to this. Um, I think it's all about the future and what Europe is going to be and what Europe is going to become. Um, and I think in terms of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, just one point I'll cheekily make in response to what you just heard. Always remember that point I made to you at the start. We buy more from them than they buy from us. So the idea that they would wish to impose tariffs and make their own goods less competitive and less likely to sell in the UK is not sensible for them and they won't do it. In terms of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, uh, I think the issue is particularly about Scotland uh, because Northern Ireland is is unionist and wishes to stay in the United Kingdom and there is no serious move for separation in Spain, in in Italy, I mean in in Wales rather. But from the point of view of Scotland, the reason I mention Spain is that Scotland's. First of all, Scotland, it's it's not financially viable for Scotland to become independent right now. The falling oil price has left a huge black hole in the Scottish economy. The unionists gained ground in Scotland last week at the elections. And of course, Scotland can't simply leave the United Kingdom and rejoin the European Union because Spain would never have it. Because otherwise, you'd have pressure for the same to happen in Catalonia. So, for all the noise the Scottish nationalists make, I do not take seriously the idea that we'll suddenly be. A, a referendum again in Scotland. We are one United Kingdom, we should vote as one United
0: Kingdom. Lovely. Paul, who won the
2: war? <laughs>
3: I'm not even sure which war we're talking about, but uh, well, look, let's, no, let's no, assume that it wasn't just us. Now, c- this um, point on devolution, I think, is quite fundamental. I think we ought to be working on the basis that if we vote to leave, there won't be a United Kingdom. It is inconceivable that Nicola Sturgeon will not use that to force another referendum. She said she will. Given the closeness of the vote last time and the number of people in Scotland who are pro-Europe, it's almost inconceivable that the vote would not flip the other way. So we are actually playing with fire here in terms of the Act of Union and the UK. And I think Chris is fundamentally wrong in relation to the Scottish relationship with Europe. He's right on Spain and Catalonia. Of course he is. The reason that the EU would not reassure the Scots that if they left the United Kingdom a year and a half ago, they could come into Europe, was because they didn't want to set alive pressures in Catalonia or other parts of Europe where the member states are trying to to resist those pressures. But that's not our situation. Our situation would be that the UK had left. And what the, the European authorities do not want to see is making it easier for countries to leave. So if the UK leaves and fragments... And Scotland comes back in because it wants to. That's consistent with what they're trying to do because a fundamental fact has changed. Two years ago, we were in. On this hypothesis, we're out, and it's a different calculus.
0: At the back, now. Somebody at the back wanted to ask a question? I don't think that Scotland would want to adopt
2: the euro. That's not really the question. Uh, in February, uh, David Cameron obtained a, a promise, no more... That the UK would be exempt from ever closer union, you must therefore agree with those who wish to leave that ever closer union is an undesirable aspect of the EU. Given that this ever closer union is hardwired into the very fabric of the union and will
0: continue to be, how does the UK exception work? Um, let's go to Paul. Ever closer union. Is damaging to the UK or a good thing for the UK?
3: Um, I suspect my rather cynical answer is it's probably irrelevant to the UK for the following reasons. I was actually reading this morning uh, the, uh, the Cameron document, the decision of the member states from February. And I hate to disagree with you, but it is structured as a legally binding document between the member states, enforceable by the European Court like any other EU document. So it has legal force. I don't think that the statement in the treaty, which people get enormously excited about, ever closer union, has any material effect on the development or evolution of the EU over the past 25 or 30 years. It's been driven... The evolution has been driven by different factors. A prime one of those being the UK arguing for the extension of the EU to the accession states in Eastern Europe, Poland and Hungary and Czech Republic, etc., which was a very strong UK driver... Why? Because they wanted a bigger, broader market, not a deeper market. So I don't think the words ever-closer union actually have very much impact on what happens in Europe.
2: Chris? So the document that the Prime Minister signed says he worked immensely hard to get it, um, and those of us on the other side think that he didn't really make anything like the progress that we would have even started to think about as being a positive in the argument... But it it was a huge effort to to make relatively little progress. And the thing to say about it is it hasn't changed the way in which our laws are made. It hasn't changed the way in which the European Union works. It hasn't changed the way in which the European Court of Justice works. And it is worth saying about the European Court of Justice. It's the central, central court of the European Union. What it decides automatically becomes law in this country. And the president of the European Court... On the day he swore in, the new members of the European Commission 18 months ago made a speech in which he said, it is your job, commissioners, to stand up against euro So this is not a dispassionate court. It's not a court no, that's no but we were in.
0: being asked about Ever Closer Union. Is it in, in, ever union? Is it in the UK's interest?
2: Um, it is not in the UK's interest to be part of Ever Closer Union, but my argument is the document in Brussels doesn't change that. Uh, what it does still is leave us in a position where all of our laws and all of those court decisions happen in exactly the same way and they take us down the same path that we've been going on for 20 years and more Europe. Okay.
3: Now, can, I just, can I just pick that up? though? You because, can just really, really briefly. If you're going to change the way laws are made in Europe, you need a constitutional conference and you need a new treaty. That was not what the Cameron exercise was about. And there, Frankly, there are groups in the UKIP and the exit part of the Conservative Party who were never going to be satisfied by anything that David Cameron brought back from his brotherhood. It was a stalking horse. The question in front of us at the moment is not whether David Cameron did or didn't get the best possible deal, or where it satisfied the expectations of Chris Grayling and some of his colleagues. The question is, given that we've got that sort of circumstance, is the UK better off within that world
0: or not? Okay, how many more questions have we got? I'm going to let you make... I'm going to take a collection. Let's start at the front here. One, two, three. No, okay. Yep, lovely.
1: Um, um, uh, For the remain, you've heard about the economic problems of leaving the EU, but what about the dilution it has on parliamentary sovereignty, if there is any dilution?
0: Okay, so we're going to have to go very quickly. If you can take a notice of the answers. yep. Do you think leaving the UK will affect the country's security? Okay, and we'll take one more. Anyone else around here? Yes.
1: So let's say basically, when we if we have left the EU and we were unable to trade with France or Germany, the core European countries, what would you do? Um, this is of Chris Grayling. What would you do if we were unable to trade with them and? The USA and China just alone trading them wasn't enough to keep our economy afloat. What would you do then?
0: So that's just to Chris. Chris, can you come in and answer those three? But but, uh, please be brief because time's.
2: The uh, uh, latter point can't happen because France, Germany, the United States, the United Kingdom, China were all governed by World Trade Organization rules. So, what would happen in that situation if we didn't reach a trade agreement, if the European Union chose to impose tariffs? It would have the effect of putting up the price of French cheese, for example, by 45%, which would put out out of business a whole range of French dairy farmers in northern France. And that's why they won't do it. But we carry on trading. We trade with, you know, you have things in your home saying made in China. We have no trade deal with China, no free trade arrangements. We have no trade deal with the United States. and It's our biggest trading partner, individual country. So that doesn't happen.
0: And there are two other questions, one on security. Two other questions on
2: security. Our Our key relationships with security around the world are with the United States, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, other countries with whom we share intelligence to combat the threat of terrorism. And also as part of NATO, which is an alliance that includes countries in Europe and outside Europe. Neither of those things changes if we leave the European Union, and indeed, the fact that we have strong bilateral relationships with countries outside the European Union on the security front proves that you do not need to be part of the European Union to do that. Indeed, our security services are better than theirs. They need us to help protect their countries. And on the sovereignty point, I absolutely agree. If we carry on in the European Union and the European Union continues to take more and more areas of government into its own ambit, taking decisions in Brussels rather than London, our parliamentary sovereignty is diluted. And I see it week in, week out when documents cross my desk uh, where the European Union is doing more things that reduce the power of our government to do things against the wishes of ministers in our parliament. Uh, We do not want to do them. We think they're bad for Britain. Uh, We try and find a fudge compromise that is less bad for Britain. But At the end of the day, we cannot control things that I think make a material difference to this country, to the businesses in it and the people in it.
0: Lovely. Security and sovereignty, but very brief because we have to finish
3: shortly. Can I pick up on sovereignty first? Um, The EU is governed by a set of laws that involve the transfer of certain competencies, certain powers to the EU. They're fixed in the treaty. They don't change. This isn't an amorphous group of people out there in Brussels who can extend their powers. You need treaty change to extend those powers, and the UK can veto any treaty change. So the EU is not evolving that sense. It's not taking more powers over the member states. It only has the powers that have been granted by the treaty. And one of the biggest roles of the European Court of Justice has actually been to knock back the EU institutions and tell them when they're exceeding their powers. Most of the cases before the European Court of Justice are either companies or governments challenging decisions taken by EU institutions to restrict their powers. So the idea that the EU is some creeping leviathan taking powers over the the UK is simply wrong. Sovereignty is a very interesting question. The UK is party to 14,000 treaties. They oblige us to go to war in some cases. They submit us to the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice in the Hague. They govern fishing rights. They govern access to the Antarctic, sea minerals, uh, environmental missions, you name it. In each one of those, we've decided to make a deal with another state or a group of states because it's in our interests. And in each one of those, we've constrained, essentially, our freedom of movement. And the EU is a particular example of that. But the fact that we're having this debate and the fact that we can take a decision shows that we are a nation-state, unless we leave and become half a nation-state, who can take a decision about its future. And that fundamental sovereignty remains ours. The only question is, within the European structure... Is it attractive for us to make certain concessions and accept certain constraints on what we can do because of the benefits we get as part of being part of a club, which is enormously beneficial
0: for us? Okay, I'm going to take some final questions from the floor, all of them. Um, Both Chris and Paul have got two or three minutes to sum up at the end, Um, but I think Maybe they'll do that in the light of the specific things that have been asked. Let's go along south of the front and go backwards uh, for the Leave um, campaign. Uh, we heard from the Remain at the start a number of sort of
1: independent groups and commissions have come out um, against. If we do, you can only serve to hurt our economy. Uh, why should we ignore those and listen to what you say? talk you say, basically.
0: Okay, let's just work backwards. Yep.
1: So this is a question to Chris Green. You seem to have um, made the assumption that if we leave the EU, we'll have more control over how we'll be able to make trade agreements. But that misses the point of a trade agreement, which is an agreement between two countries. And so to get a trade agreement with the EU, we'll still have to make exactly the same concessions, payments, to the EU that that we currently do.
0: Okay. and, yep, down there. Chris Grayling, were you influenced by the words of David Cameron and Barack Obama? Okay. Yes or no? Okay. Um, no, 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 no,
2: you're not going
0: to answer. Just say yes or no. Were you influenced at all, no? Uh,
2: no, but I can no, explain you, why,
0: if you want. No, uh, you'll come back to... Were you influenced at all, Paul? By, by the words of David Cameron and, and Barack Obama, are you only yes well, or I, no? I, yes I, I, or the no? answer is yes.
3: Okay.
2: And there's a, there's
0: an uh, no, 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 that's it. <laughs> We're getting some comments from the floor. um, Let's go to that young lady back there. She's desperate for questions. And there's a gentleman, a person behind her. (laughs) I'm not going to get that wrong again.
1: (laughs) It could be argued that the um, Remain campaign is based on a rational, calculated um, view of how to affect economic stability and that the Leave
0: campaigns were based on an irrational sense of patriotism and national pride. I your comments on that. Okay, and behind? Mm-hmm. Um, just given the current
1: immigration crisis, I'm sure for many would you one of the main considerations. So just to both speakers, I'm wondering how they think the immigration situation will change with or without leaving.
0: Okay, and we've got one at the front here. Sides touched on the future of the EU, um, but Mr Grayling focused particularly on the future of the Euro and how the structure is likely to change, but the UK still won't become a part of it, and that I do agree with. However, he hastily drew to the conclusion that we should therefore leave the European Union, but I believe that that would be throwing away the only bargaining power, the only diplomatic voice that we may have as a means of defence, from the tyrannical apocalyptic European Union that he's describing. Yeah, very good. Yes, we're heating up all at the end of it. Come along.
1: Uh, how likely do you uh, believe it would be that the French would lead the Left UK agreement if we were to leave the EU? And to a um, what extent will that be detrimental to our border control and immigration?
0: And two at the front?
1: <laughs> um, human rights are an essential part of our modern bureaucracy. They protect us. Regardless of our race, religion, sexual orientation, etc. And don't you think that leaving the European Union might have a detrimental effect to um, their protection in the future?
0: Behind you.
1: On the issue of sovereignty, don't you think that there are natural limitations on the British part? Like we can't manage or regulate international companies to the same extent that we can within Europe?
0: And just at the frontier, second row, Anybody else burning to say something? Should we
3: run for about another eight hours, do you think? Sorry? Should we run for about another eight hours? Yeah, we could run for easily for another eight hours.
1: Article 125 of the Lisbon Treaty expressly forbids bailouts. So, how can the Remain campaign, uh, G, trust an organisation which outright boasts about rejecting the rule of law?
0: And behind you, this gentleman and this person.
1: What about workers' rights? Chris Green wants to leave an organisation that has given our workers so many vital rights. Do we, are we really meant to trust him, Michael Gove, and another bunch of uh, neoliberal ideologues to protect our workers' rights and give them maternity, paternity leave, and the other things that EU has ensured for us?
0: Lovely. Thank you. You won't be able to answer all those questions, but we've got three minutes to sum up. You might want to bear them in mind. Paul Lomas is doing another debate for me at Millmead, so he might want to bear in those questions of I'm being plead with to have one more, um, and the also th- also the other thing I'd bear in mind, which maybe I can ask from the audience cards, is what does this decision mean for young people? Which is interesting that we haven't quite answered that. But there was you have the last word.
1: Um, uh,
2: if the, um, <laughs>
1: from the floor. if the UK were to leave the EU, do you think uh, the UK's influence? Are- around the world would grow or shrink? Or if you were to remain in the EU, do you think the UK's influence around the world would grow or shrink?
0: Okay, lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, Chris, I'll ask you to, you've got three minutes. What you have to do in this three minutes is we've heard all the questions, we've heard your answers. Is your final pitch to this audience as to why they should vote leave. Okay, I'm
2: going to pick out two or three of the points and then give that final answer. IMF, Treasury, Barack Obama. Just remember these things. The IMF had to apologise to George Osborne in 2014 for getting its numbers wrong, that the Treasury forecasts on what happens if Britain leaves the European Union assume our economy continues to grow. And Barack Obama said, I want Britain to stay in the European Union because I think it's in the interest of the United States. I want to do what's in the interest of the United Kingdom, not what's in the interest of the United States, even though they are and will be and should be good friends of ours. Uh, irrational sense of patriotism? No, it's because I believe it's what's right for our country. And I explain in a whole variety of different ways that's why it's the case. The UK agreement is a bilateral agreement with France. Um, there's no way that they're going to walk away from it for one simple reason. We don't have refugee camps around Heathrow Airport because the, tra- the carriers have to check that people can enter the UK before they get on their planes. If we ask the train companies to do the same, all the French will do by tearing up the treaty is attract more refugees to France and create more problems for themselves. But look, go back to what I said at the beginning. Uh, Paul talked about us being half a nation state if we leave the European Union. That's such nonsense. You know, do we look at Japan and say it's half a nation state? Do we look at Australia and say it's half a nation state? Do we look at Canada and say it's half a nation state? Of course we don't. We're the fifth biggest economy in the world. We're one of the strongest military powers in the world. We are permanent members of the security council of the United Nations. We're key members of NATO. We remain a major player in the world, come what may. But it is about what's doing right for us as a nation. Do you want, in adult life, to live in a country that can look after its own interests? Where you can kick out the government every five years and take decisions about what happens in your country? I said to you earlier, the flow of migrants into this country will change the southeast of England in ways that will be immensely noticeable to you. You may want that, you may not want that. You should be able to choose. Businesses are affected by things that cost jobs, create opportunities, remove opportunities. We talked about workers' rights. I'm not in the business of getting rid of workers' rights, but should we not have the ability to decide in this country for ourselves? Do we really need an international body to tell us how to look after our workers and our businesses? And it comes down to that question. Do you want to emerge into adult life in a country that can govern itself, that can take decisions in your interests, where you can kick out the government if you want, Or do you want to be part of a country that has subsumed its sovereignty to a much greater extent in an international bloc where the politicians who represent you, as I find is the case today, cannot take decisions that are in the interests of this country? That's why I want to leave. I want us to be a sovereign nation again. I want June the 23rd to be Independence Day for the United Kingdom.
0: Lovely. Thank you very much. Two minutes, 36 seconds. I should vote to remain.
3: Plus the extra minute I'm trading in from the opening
0: speech. Yeah, you so are. So I know. We, uh, I did uh, what <clears throat> was going to say. Okay, let's, touch let's
3: try and pick up a couple of points uh, very quickly. We've heard a lot about this uh, sort of uh, Leviathan state. Only 7% of the primary legislation in the UK even mentions or is related to EU legislation. So the other 93% is coming from our government. So this has got to be kept in perspective. And a lot of that 7% is legislation that we'd have to pass anyway because we have to control car emissions or we need healthy food. So there is a lot of scaremongering about the degree of uh, impact of the EU, important though it is, as access to market. I want to pick up on Barack Obama and the US. Um, There was this wonderful thing from Nigel Farage, it's not what he wants, it's what we want. And you think, how stupid a comment, can that be? Because your Brexit campaign is predicated on the fact that we'll be able to trade with the US under some sort of trading arrangement. And here is the President of the US, seven and a half years, the most powerful man in the world, turning up and telling you, please don't make the decision on that basis, friends, because it ain't going to happen in any short, relevant time frame. I'm not telling you, says Obama, that it'll never happen, but it's not going to happen for a long time. And critically, I can't tell you what the terms are. Because what Chris has been doing throughout this debate, and we haven't had a chance to get into it, is saying, it's all right, they want to sell us Volkswagens, it's all fine, we'll be able to buy the Volkswagens or the BMWs or the Mercedes. It's not a question of whether they can trade, it's a question of the terms upon which they trade. And you cannot sell into the EU without meeting their tariff obligations. They will sell to us, we'll have French wine and cheese and all sorts of things. We'll do the buy side, that's spending our money. My concern is about earning our money. And to earn our money, we need to trade. And we are a powerful, successful nation, albeit still small in global terms. So if you are in that situation, you need to be smart and you need to be strategic. And the way that we leverage our capabilities, services, manufacturing, skills, intellectual capital, is through trading through the EU as a portal to its 550 million people, leaving out ours, 500 million, and through its agreements to the rest of the world, which it can negotiate on much more powerful terms than we can. Migration. We didn't talk very much about migration, but I think it's really important to you guys. Let's just recognise that on the current numbers, the migration of EU citizens in the EU um, is about two, two and a half million. depends, it's a bit difficult to count. We also have about two million UK citizens who are abroad. I don't want to go through the treaty provisions on free movement now, although I'll happen to talk about it afterwards. But the critical thing is, our obligation to take in EU citizens is matched by your right to go and live and work and study and sell your services, set up businesses, move your capital through the other 27 states. And that is a fantastic opportunity that you have, and 2 million of your fellow citizens have availed themselves of it. And you will lose that if we leave, because free movement will go So my closing point to you is that this is a fundamental decision about your future. Uh, As I said to one or two of the people who were talking to us before, in a couple of years' time I'll be growing tomatoes and watching orchids and and, and old films, but you, you're going to be looking for jobs and making your careers. And whether the UK is growing, and whether it's part of a vibrant economy that's growing, is fundamental to your future. So you should be thinking about these issues. I beg you to vote Remain, because I think that's how your futures are more secure. But whatever we do in this debate, wherever you end up, it doesn't stop here. Go out and vote. And tell your colleagues and tell your older brothers and sisters, if they have a right to vote, to go out and vote. Because this is really important for you. And as I said earlier, it's one way. If we stay and everything goes to hell in a handcart, we can rethink. If we've left, there's no way back.
0: We're gone. Thank you very much. Going to come and finish I just want to ask you one question put up your hand, you said they were undecided right, put down, your hand if, put down your hand if you remain undecided has anybody made up their mind this afternoon is what I'm after put up your hand if you've made up your mind ok we've got a couple, shout out which way, leave or remain from the back Leave. Ah, you've got one. one Remain. 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 Ah, three to one were persuaded by the vote. This is just the beginning of the debate. I would uh, just like to say could um, the audience please give a big hand for Mr. Burden and Cranley School? Uh, Whatever you do on June the 23rd, you absolutely have to go out and vote and persuade everybody you know, because we should leave this meeting. We might have fierce arguments afterwards about whether to leave or remain, but in this country we enjoy the freedom to have a debate like this, which many countries don't enjoy. Thank you very much.
1: I'm sure you'll all agree that was a fantastic debate and thank you so much for getting involved. It was really great to see so many hands and apologies for those who we didn't get to with your questions. I hope you've got a bit of a clear picture uh, from the remarks from Chris Grayling and Paul Lomas today. I certainly have. Now, uh, debate continues. We're launching an online poll on Twitter on the Cranley Hist Poll or Cranley History Politics account. So if you go online to Twitter and you leave this hall now, you'll be able to vote, leave or remain. Uh, or uh, there's also um, a hashtag EU debate where you can make comments on your thoughts on the debate today. There are also in the opposite at uh, Cranley, um, some of you may have heard that they've been running uh, a number of podcasts on this debate. They've got three up so far. They're also going to be doing a fourth podcast on today's debate, going through and critically analysing what the speakers have said. So please go to the Cranley School website uh, and download those. Um, I'd like to offer my huge thanks to Paul Lomas and to Chris Grayling for coming all the way to Cranley today and for taking your questions. But this whole event wouldn't have been possible without the support from Anne Milton and her team. So I'd like to wish them many thanks uh, for their efforts and putting this together. Thank you again to students and staff from the other schools for, for coming along uh, today. And final thing, can I just wish you all the best of luck? The first time you vote, is a very, very special thing. Okay, so best of luck when you go to that pollen Booth on June the 23rd, go along there, tweet about it, post about it afterwards, enjoy it. But most importantly make a really good decision and I'm sure you'll enjoy the experience. Thank you very much.